Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Dan Feinberg. Welcome, Dan. How you doing, Leslie? How was your Thanksgiving? We took a week off. Are you rejuvenated? I am, yes. And by the way, speaking of things that we celebrated in holidays, happy first birthday to TV's Top 5, Dan. Yes. Uh, what did you get us, dear listeners? <laughs> <laughs> No? <laughs> I, I think I, their subscription is what they got us. Ah, okay. Yes. Uh, and also uh, their ratings and reviews. I'll mention that maybe perhaps later in the podcast. But anyway, yes, we, we are honored to have made it through our first year and uh, to have established ourselves as perhaps the Internet's uh, number 57 Baby Yoda podcast on iTunes. Yes, this is our 49th episode, and we launched a year ago this week. Dan, it's been a lot of fun. That makes not us that sound we're like ending. slackers. What, what's up with those other weeks? Why Why did we not do three podcasts? Fourth of July, Thanksgiving. Dude, New we Year's. Are, we are a bunch of slackers, Christmas. and to our listeners, I apologize. And in <laughs> advance, we apologize for what may potentially be a slightly slow episode of TV's Top 5. Dude, slow. There's a ton of things going on, Dan. Was that a transition to our first topic? It was. Number one. So since we took last week off, there were a lot of headlines that came through over the holidays, as tends to happen with the pre-holiday news dump. So we're going to change things up, and instead of doing headlines to start, we're actually going to do that as a whole segment this week, just because there's a lot of, it's like a whole hodgepodge of things going on, Dan. Or because there's nothing else major going on. One or the other. <laughs> Well, Dan, why don't you start us off with news that our fine listeners may have missed over the holiday break? Yes, indeed. You may have missed this unless you have a very, very sensitive uh, news alert set up for Quibi. Former DC Entertainment President Diane Nelson is out at Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman's startup Quibi. After less than a year, she is the third high-profile exec to depart the service ahead of its April launch, joining Janice Min, our former boss, and Tim Connolly. I don't know that there's a point of doing a what the bleep is up with Quibi segment, given that Quibi doesn't exist. But, Leslie, what the bleep is up with Quibi? I mean, the third executive departure, third major exec departure before its April launch, it's not a good sign. I don't know that we know exactly what was behind Diane Nelson's decision to leave, but it doesn't reflect very well on Quibi. It's funny because I, I feel like I, I have more and more of a sense of what Quibi actually is. And I guess I appreciate that because when we first did our first Quibi related segment on this podcast, I didn't even know it, stand, it stands for Quick Bites. And I, while just I, to go back to see your reaction, I wish our fine listeners could see the look of shock on your face when I said that it, what it stood for. I, I it, it, it opened my eyes and made me realize that the thing's name really should be pronounced Quibi. And other than that, um, yes, that's all I've gotten out of that. No, I, I remain sort of perplexed by this service because it's one of those things where it feels to me like either it's going to turn out to be this thing that there's a huge appetite for and because I'm old, I don't fully recognize it, or alternatively, the people who have started it they're old and they think that there's a need for it and they have not correctly anticipated what it's going to be. And the fact that this is going to be a not cheap subscription service with no library content to start off with, but a lot of original stuff that they basically want you to watch on the subway or in dull moments in business meetings 
And it's all with a lot of big top stars and and big name producers, too. It's it's going to be a very interesting experiment. And I think probably in a perfect world, we wouldn't be hearing about any of this bumpiness. And because of the big names attached, that's why we're hearing about it. But anyway, we are still perplexed by what the bleep is up with Quibi. What else did people miss last week, Leslie? Well, speaking of the executive departures, another network president is out at Warner Media. This time it's Christina Miller, who will depart as president of Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Boomerang, and Turner Classic Movies. Sources say Warner Media asked her to stay, but she opted to pursue new opportunities. You know, look, she is the latest exec to leave the Warner Media fold and joins True TV president Chris Lynn, Cinemax president Carrie Anthalis as execs who departed the company. And, you know, look, in the larger sense, we've talked about this many times, but industry consolidation in the executive ranks has been a continuing theme over the last couple of years as a lot of these big companies consolidate to to better prepare for the streaming future, especially like when you look at Viacom. I mean, I feel like I have a Ph.D. in writing about the game of executive musical chairs going on over there. So and we are going to talk more about that later, because if there's any topic that's more sexy than streaming wars and overall deals. It's industry consolidation, so we'll get more to it later. In other holiday news dump information, Netflix has canceled Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, the reboot after two seasons. Everyone involved insists that it's not really done. It's just this particular incarnation of its life is done, but... Probably the world is a little bit better when Mystery Science Theater 3000 is active in it. And CBS All Access has canceled Strange Angel after two seasons. Yes, that is a show that aired on CBS All Access, and I totally even reviewed it. And it wasn't even awful, but boy, did it not get into the conversation. It is CBS All Access's second cancellation after $1, which is a show that I didn't even watch any of. Yeah, well, that wraps up what you may have missed over the holidays. Well, let's shift now to this week's headlines. It's a little slow going, at, you know, heading into the home stretch of the year. But one of the bigger stories of the week, Marvel's animated Tigra and Dazzler comedy at Hulu is undergoing a massive creative overhaul and has fired its showrunner and its entire writing staff after what I'm told is 15 weeks of a 20 week production schedule. Marvel will start from scratch on the series and throw out between six and eight scripts, as well as outlines for additional episodes. That's a lot of money spent crafting a show with what sounds like a, almost a full season of, of TV and Marvel's completely throwing away. Tigra is, of course, one of the four adult-themed animated shows from Marvel that Hulu picked up earlier this year. All the others, including Howard the Duck, remain on track. Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Over at HBO, and this sounds more exciting to me than anything involving Tigra and Dazzler. Uh, Woody Harrelson and Justin Theroux will star in a Watergate limited series from the team behind Veep. That's at HBO. Well, at HBO Max, the streamer picked up Generation, which is a half-hour high school dramedy executive produced by Lena Dunham and created by an 18-year-old and her father. Uh, created by an 18-year-old, yeah. Yeah, that is that is definitely a thing that is happening. Yeah, I read the script for that. It's very good. Over at ABC, sophomore comedy Schooled has been picked up for an additional nine episodes and hired its third showrunner after Tim Doyle was pushed out earlier this season following a short run at the helm of the Goldberg spinoff. In other broadcast showrunner moves, D. Harris Lawrence, friend of the five, has joined CBS legal drama All Rise as co-showrunner. And of course, regular listeners to our show may recall our interview with her about being a first-time showrunner for Owen's terrific drama, David Makes Man, back in August. And if you're interested in, in listening to that, please go check out episode 36 from August 30th. Over at Disney Plus, they picked up a reality show called Star Wars Jedi Temple Challenge. Sure. 
Why Hosted not? by Jar Jar Binks, Dan. Don't don't get ahead in this. I'm script. getting ahead. It's Jar Jar Binks. Well, not Jar Jar Binks. It's I the was... actor who played Jar Jar Binks. Do you think they're gonna like acknowledge it, or are they gonna pretend as if, oh, it's Ahmed Best who who just coincidentally happens to be a big Star Wars fan, or is he gonna like begin every episode by apologizing for Jar Jar? <laughs> I don't know, but I would check that out if he did. Uh, yes, he will host the series, uh, and it will launch in the fall of 2020. Over at Netflix, the streamer has outbid HBO for a pair of stand-up specials from Ali Wong. Sources say Netflix paid in the low eight figures for the specials from the writer and actress behind Always Be My Maybe. And that's what you missed. How sad are you feeling about that, dear listeners? That takes us into our second topic this week. And this is, again, another story that broke over the holiday break. But NBC has now launched a formal investigation into what happened behind the scenes on America's Got Talent that saw Judge Gabrielle Union after a one-season run on a top-rated competition show. Number two. Following reports of a toxic culture, Union had what she described as a lengthy five-hour, is there any other kind, and productive meeting on Tuesday during which she expressed her hope for real change at the network. Union and fellow freshman Judge Julianne Huff were dismissed November 22nd. Since then, claims of off-color jokes from guest Jay Leno and concerns over Union's hair and wardrobe choices as being described as quote-unquote too black have emerged as the show's workplace culture prepares to go under the microscope. In the meantime, Union has received support from former AGT judges, including Sharon Osbourne and Howard Stern, with the latter calling the Simon Cowell-produced talent show a quote-unquote boys club, and if anyone would know to recognize a so-called boys club, it would be Howard Stern. Yeah, Stern spent four seasons as a judge on Got Talent, and here's a quote. He says, quote, He sets it up that the men stay no matter how ugly they are, no matter how old they are, no matter how fat they are, no matter how talentless they are. And that's, of course, Howard Stern talking about Simon Cowell's selection of the judges panel. He went on to say, quote, he replaces the hot chicks with hotter chicks and younger chicks. Howie Mandel's doing a fine, serviceable job. Why don't they change him? And why don't they change Simon? This is the ultimate example of a boys club. (sighs) Time's up and other prominent actresses and showrunners have voiced their support for Union. This is, as we often say in circumstances like this, an ongoing situation that we will surely monitor. I I think it is an interesting thing for any variety of reasons, most particularly being that AGT remains a remarkably successful summer franchise for NBC. Yeah, they did a spinoff of it, America's Got Talent Champions, this year. I I only know that existed because they sent us a box with international cookies and candy uh, so that we knew that it was a thing. And look, I I am not going to lie. The breaking of this story was the first time I knew that Gabrielle Union was on America's Got Talent, but this is just a reflection of how much TV there is and how easy it is for something like this to get pushed under my radar, and it probably shouldn't because it it points to, I don't know, points to where we are as a as an industry and where the conversation has been, because certainly Simon Cowell has always been celebrated for being irascible and for being crass, <laughs> crass and whatever you want to say. That's his brand. It's his brand. It's made him not just millions. It's made him presumably hundreds of millions, literally at this point. And so the conversations as to whether different things were happening on this show beyond what he's always done, I think are going to be interesting to find out. But I think it also is an entirely reasonable change in industry uh, standards to say, no, this, this is actually, this is not acceptable. And so, yeah, and you don't, 
you don't screw with Gabrielle Union. I, I know only I know only a few things about her, but I know that she is not someone you want to mess with. And so if she is feeling like she had a thing to stand up for herself on here, I assume probably that she's correct. Yeah. And it's also an example of how our culture has changed since Simon Cowell first came onto the scene. I mean, you know, and, and look, we should you know, admit here that we don't know what the center of the investigation is. Not that a darn thing. That hasn't come out yet. I think it's a safe presumption to make that our culture has changed to the point where it may not be feasible for Simon Cowell to be the same Simon Cowell that he has been over the last couple of years. Or just in general, you know, the thing he made his brand off of is not a thing that even the show he made his brand on, at least in the United States, can do the same way. Uh, You know, American Idol... When it premiered, it was all about Simon Cowell insulting people, and everyone was like, ha, 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 it's so funny. Look at all the people who are coming in who Simon is taunting for how they look and how they sound, and he's the big meanie and all of that. And if you go and actually watch the current version of American Idol such as it exists, and some people will be shocked to know that its third season on ABC is actually premiering this winter. Three? Is that true? I believe it is true. It is so much more a a big-hearted, inspirational, whatever show than it used to be. So even the show that he made his name on is not that show anymore. So things are changing, and we will follow this one as we go. Yes. Up third in business news, CBS and Viacom's remerger has officially closed. Number three. The newly named Viacom CBS will boast assets including Paramount's film and TV studios, MTV, BET, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, Pluto TV, CBS, CBS All Access, and Showtime. Viacom CEO Bob Backish will lead the combined company, and he called the remerger a quote-unquote historic moment. We had Matt Bellany, our boss, on the podcast a month ago, two months ago, to talk about this subject, if memory serves, Um, and... I asked him the same question. I'm now going to ask you, and the answer can be a shrug if you want. Our listeners won't be able to see it, but I'll tell them it's there. Why is this a big deal, and how will it impact anybody actually listening to this podcast at home? Well, I mean, it gives both companies a big vault of IP and executives and talent as they look to bulk up to better compete in the streaming era. Look, when you, you've got Netflix and they've got Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes and, and they're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars every year on content and IP, this is how these legacy media companies need to build up by doing mergers like this, by doing what Disney did with Fox and buying the TV and film studio and other and, and some of those cable networks. This is the same thing that's happening here. And it gives Viacom a more established streaming service, which is perhaps the bigger headline. You know, and look, one of the things that we've noted many times on this show, all of these need to, media giants need to scale up as they better position themselves for the future. And for the time being, anyway, I did this story a couple, uh, I think it was two or three weeks ago, Viacom has had a strategy of being both a content supplier for third parties, meaning selling content to Netflix, and keeping it in-house. Um, I think one of the biggest deals, and I, and I mentioned this when HBO Max had their investor day, they announced that they had, had secured exclusive streaming rights to South Park. That's a Viacom-owned show. Viacom could have sold South Park to CBS All Access, where it would have made that platform a bigger destination than Star Trek. And it didn't. It, it instead cashed in and got, I think, $500 million to $600 million for that library deal alone. And in the meantime, Viacom is, has made a big deal with Netflix and will sell a lot of Nickelodeon stuff and make new versions of Nickelodeon shows. 
And at the same time, it's going to have Nickelodeon stuff on CBS All Access, too. So this is the beginning of of these companies scaling up. So you're going to start to see All Access really getting some resources and probably Showtime. And, you know, David Nevins has made, you know, now has a bigger umbrella. Chris McCarthy, who oversees a bunch of cable networks, added a bunch more, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. They're scaling up. This is the beginning. Meanwhile, if you want to know what the South Park guys actually think about the streaming wars, you should definitely check out this week's episode, which was not really particularly funny, honestly, but definitely made a lot of jokes about the names of streaming services. So, <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, you know, they tried to pitch a fake show that was at the center of this week's episode. And look, the South Park guys just cashed in. They, they just got 500 million bucks. Also, the the feeling I got watching this week's South Park was that they don't really actually watch any TV. So someday I hope we'll get them in the showrunner spotlight and we can say, so what are you guys actually watching? And they'll scratch their heads. So that's what I'm hoping for. And speaking of showrunner spotlight. That's right. Next up, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Joining us this week is Nichelle Tramble Spellman, who created and serves as showrunner on Apple's next drama series, Truth Be Told. Starring Octavia Spencer, the series is based on a book about a reporter-turned-podcaster who reopens the murder case that launched her career. Before working with exec producer Reese Witherspoon on the Apple series, Spellman, who is a two-time author, also worked on The Good Wife and Justified. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you for inviting me. So the series has a lot of the bones of Kathleen Barber's Are You Sleeping? Mm -hmm. But it kind of uses it as a starting point, and then you go elsewhere, I would say fairly quickly. What did you respond to in the source material? And when you saw the source material, what did you know that you wanted to bring to it as your own stamp away from what the book is? Well, in the book, the twins sort of lead the story. And I knew that I wanted to explore the ripple effect of crime and tragedy on different families. And the reporter, by making uh, the Poppy Parnell, the podcast character, the center of the narrative, that way we could go into all three families. And we would be a little bit more limited with the twins, with their point of view. And that's basically what I was the most interested in. I thought that there's a way that we consume true crime as if the people aren't real. And so I kind of wanted to explore the ripple effect with the accused, the victim's family, and then the reporter at the center of the story as she kind of starts to navigate this very gray area for herself professionally and personally. Well, this is also the sort of story that a lot of the time when we see it, I mean, in serial, but also so many other times, it becomes almost a white savior narrative that's Mm -hmm. just kind of baked into the DNA to some degree. Mm -hmm. How much was inverting that genre trope a thing that you were aiming for from the beginning? You know, we that wasn't a part of the initial idea that I had. But once we cast Octavia and she came aboard pretty early, we had an initial conversation. She signed on and then I developed the pitch after that. So it was really about her and building this huge story, this family, this backstory, everything around that central character. And then Aaron Paul was the second person to come on board. And so it was really casting that gave us the opportunity to do those things. So it wasn't the intention. Okay. But then once you saw you had the opportunity, Mm -hmm. how did you want to approach that? You know, I didn't, that wasn't a thing (laughs) that, that actually wasn't a piece. I don't think we ever discussed that in the writer's room once. It was really a about this woman, the question that we use to drive us through the eight episodes is who is Poppy Parnell? I think that was the central mystery of the show because we meet her at the beginning and we think one thing, this fancy house, this fancy husband, she's in Marin, everything else. You see her drive across the bridge and it's like, oh, she 
comes from a kind of criminal element and this sort of down-home family. So we started to build the story and build the idea for the show around what we learn about her over eight episodes. And so um, once we started to develop the Warren Cave character, it was in relationship to how it affected her. Yeah, in in a larger sense, you know, I'm fascinated. Obviously, you're joining us on a podcast here, but the appeal of bringing a book about a famous podcaster to television at a time when we're the industry is seeing such a growth in yeah. podcasts. I think, you know, look, what was it, two weeks ago, NBC Universal just announced a big podcasting platform mm-hmm. that it's going to do with, you know, its creators like Sam Ismail. But so can you talk a little bit about the appeal of doing this as a TV series? Was Did you consider any other medium for this? No, it was always, uh, always uh, envisioned it as a TV series. But I just kind of like the idea of combining the element of podcast the appeal for podcast to me is being told a story like when you were a kid you know almost everybody you guys included they have really nice voices so there's something very like it draws you in you're sitting around a campfire and I thought how can we use that on screen and still have that and Octavia has such a wonderful voice and her voice carries her carries us through and we tried to play a little bit with the audio and make the viewing experience also a listening experience. And that was because we were using the podcast medium. Well, how much did you really care, though, about the realities of sort of the nuts and bolts of podcast production and all of that? Well, we before we started writing, we had conversations with different podcasters. Sarah Koenig is a consultant on the show. So she gave us, you know, parameters, and then we blew it up as needed. <laughs> but what did that entail? Because obviously it's sort of, as we see it here, it's basically these two women in a yeah. room. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have the 10 different sound mm-hmm. engineers. Mm-hmm. Of course, admittedly, we're sitting here and we only have uh, Josh, our wonderful <laughs> sound engineer producer. We do not have a crew of 50 people, which right. we certainly could. But did anyone want to say, you know, realistically, you would need three more researchers and three more of these, and but no one wanted to do you that? You know, <laughs> those were actual characters, and then they didn't make it in the final cut. <laughs> but we, <laughs> but we, we had a researcher you know, a person that did some of the field work, all of that. And then because we had such great actors on the show, we just kind of narrowed it down to the essential element. And, you know, you mentioned that that Sarah was a consultant on this. Obviously, she comes you know, from This American Life and Serial. But what would you say that um, her biggest influence on the show was? I think the idea of a story that you start out with one story and it's unfolding in real time. And then it kind of grows so big, maybe bigger than you even thought. I think that was the idea that we really, you know, used from that first season. With all of the things that she brought to the show, there was talk a couple of years ago during the height of the true crime boom, right after making a murderer hit and the jinx obviously broke out. There was talk about doing a serial TV show. Did you guys talk about that at all? And would no. that be something that you would want I to wonder, tackle I wonder, you know, for some reason, I feel like that's still in play. But, yeah, it was never a part of this because we were using Are You Sleeping as the um, basis. I had gone into a general meeting with a producer I'd worked with before, and she gave me the manuscript before the book was published. And so that's where it all started. So it came from Kathleen Barber's book. Yeah. Just piggybacking off of that real quick, you know, the true crime boom Mm -hmm. after making a murder and the jinx, 
you know, we saw it explode. Everyone was doing it. There was like the Jean Benet thing. I think there were competing projects about the same, you know, there was a Menendez show on NBC. Right. Dirty and John. Dirty John. Yes, of course. But what, is, what do you think that, that our culture's fascination with true crime shows, be it podcasts or TV shows or movies even, you know, what does I'm that say a, about our culture? I'm a, a complete true crime fan. And um, I've talked about this because Octavia is too. And that's how we bonded in our initial meeting. I told her that, um, you know, my sister and I have this weird habit of watching snap marathons on Christmas Day and we're all <laughs> we're all in you know separate bedrooms kind of shouting through the house oh did you see that and so the idea that I watched 2020 and 48 hours and all of those programs and then I even remember as a kid there was a pharmacy in my town that had those wire racks remember those that filled with uh, the different paperbacks mm-hmm. and they always had these really like crazy true crime stories and they're like 10 for a dollar you know and I'd come home with them in the basket of my bike and just kind of read these and the I and I like the mystery the idea of writing a wrong solving a puzzle and I think it's the same thing I think that carries over I think that's an interesting thing you bring up because there are these designations and tiers of how we kind of perceive the genre. There's the the pulpy paperbacks. Yeah. There's the news magazines. Then there's something like Snapped, which is, you know, I think we sort of code that as being more tawdry right. or trashy. And then right. there are the prestige ones. What do you respond to differently in those kind of gradations? And which one of those did you want this to be? You know, the paperbacks that started the whole thing when I was a kid was more about you know, reading about things that the adults would talk about when you weren't in the room. So it was just like a way to kind of face a horror. And I think it's like, it's a way that you invite the boogeyman in almost. You know what I mean? And there's, to me, it's like, okay, if I know that this can happen, it won't happen to me. There's just this weird psychology. And that was my interest as a kid. And then, you know, I told stories when I was little. And so I'd make my own versions up. And then my first two, uh, my first two novels were mystery novels. So for me, that's always the appeal of what happened? How did they go about solving this? What were all the pieces? What was left out? So it's the, the, the puzzle building. Apple has made it a point in, mm-hmm. in their originals to, to tell stories that, as, as they say, or confirm or whatever on background, that they're looking for aspirational programming. Mm-hmm. Knowing that that's what they're looking for, how does Truth Be Told fit in with that that push? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a really great canned answer, but I don't know. Because it's a little, it's adult and it's um, edgy and we have an unreliable narrator and we have, you know, the lead character being a little unethical and living in the gray area. So I think the idea of someone being true to a cause is the aspirational part of it, because I think with her, with the Poppy character finding out that she's possibly involved in something that ruins someone else's life, she learns that when no one else is around. So the idea that she could just keep it a secret and keep moving and not tell anybody and not have to face it publicly. So the idea that you do the right thing maybe is how it it answers that question. Well, I'm, I was sort of interested by the fact that the first three episodes, which are all that we've been given so far, um, that they're all in the sort of 40 to 45 minute range. And so you're not saying, Wee, I'm in streaming, I can do 55 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes. Um, and, you know, definitely the characters swear, but I don't think they're, you know, cursing up a storm or anything. How did you approach what limitations or lack of limitations you had in this? You know, we really didn't have any, but I just like the idea of like a tighter story, you know, with not a lot of um, 
bloat. So we, as we started to edit, that's what felt natural. There was an opportunity to do, you know, the full 60 minutes, but it just felt like we were spinning our wheels. And that's one of the ways that the um, researcher and the engineer and all of those characters <laughs> fell out. <laughs> How long were they actually in? Were they in scripts all the way up to when you were shooting? Were they ever cast? How far along did you have those people as part of the story? Uh, cast. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. huh. and, and they were in script. Some of them started to fall out as we went forward. And we kind of knew we really want to stay on Octavia. We wanna, really want to stay on Aaron, we really want to spend time with both Lizzie's, you know, so, yeah. Well, how much of that comes from your own earlier TV experiences, whether Good Wife or Justified, et cetera? You know, how much did you learn in those times about having economy as opposed to the streaming bloat that we see so often? You know, I think that I learned that on Good Wife. We had this expression in the room that we'd go in and start to blue sky the season. And we always said, oh, you know, this is going to happen. Episode 15, this is going to happen. 18, we're going to save this to the finale. And then it was like everything got pulled left, as we called it. And, you know, what we imagined happening, episode 15, often would happen in eight. And so you just kind of learn how to just tell a robust but tight story. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that we've seen in the streaming era is that shows don't last as long. Mm -hmm. They don't run as many seasons. Um, Netflix, I think, that you know, has been made it a point of, of canceling shows after four. Right. And that's if a lot of things are lucky enough to get that far. Right. Where it seems like four is the new six, as, as I've been saying. Mm -hmm. Um as you think about the future of Truth Be Told, is this a closed-ended, limited series? This is a limited series. Okay. Yeah, this is a limited series. But does it feel like there are characters here who would be functional in a, in a season two? Oh, for two? sure. Okay. Poppy could take on an, another case. <laughs> an anthology. And, yeah, yeah, and then, you know, the history and the dynamics in her family is something that you could continue to explore going forward. Because there's a lot of... Um, story there. There's a lot of drama and mystery there. But it wasn't part of the initial pitch was this. Yeah. Just, okay. mm -hmm. And I think that's how we were filming in L.A. It was limited. I think that's the way that we built this cast. <laughs> uh, that was my next question, yeah. actually, because when you look at Aaron Paul I mean, yeah. and, and Lizzie Kaplan, right. and Activia, like they're all getting so many offers in this landscape yeah. where there's so much just so much content. Yeah. So with the eight episodes, it's done. It's in Los Angeles. I think that was exciting. Well, you mentioned that Octavia was the first on board when you sat down with her and had these conversations with her and presumably had to know that she was going to want to be a producer as well. Mm -hmm. What were the conversations about what she wanted to do, maybe what she hadn't felt like she'd been getting the chance to do, what you could give her to do that she hadn't done before? You know, I wanted her to have she's um, been married on screen, but she's not had a marriage on screen. And that was one thing that, that she and I were both interested in exploring. And then I, you know, mixed it up a little bit by giving her a past love interest. So she had a triangle. And then just where you think one thing about her where she's a good person and you could trust her, and very quickly you find out that you can't. And that was kind of, but she was, she was an involved executive producer, but she really left the writers to do what they wanted to do. She had a lot of trust. Were there comparable conversations with Aaron when he came on board? What yeah, he they, to do? it was a fantastic cast. Like on the page, the cast was amazing. And then in person and on set, like everyone was prepared. Everyone was off book. They were pleasant. We had a really great experience. And I, I couldn't believe it. I thought, I'm never going to get this again, am I? <laughs> I mean, Aaron Paul is almost unrecognizable when you first see him yeah. on screen. And like you like. 
I wrote, I think I wrote his casting and I knew he was in the show. <laughs> but yet when you see him, you're like, holy shit, that's Aaron Paul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, he was scary. I mean, it was a, a, a crazy transformation. Was that, you know, when you cast him, was that part of the appeal for him? You know, part of the appeal was the fact that he's such a great actor and he's just a wonderful man. And we talked about the character. We talked about some of the things that might happen over the course of the season. And then he he decided on his look and it was wonderful. I mean, the tattoos. Yeah. And the, like, it's crazy. Yeah. Are there things that having an actor as inherently likable as him allow you to get away with in terms of how far you want to push that character into into darkness? Yeah, I think with both of them, actually. I think with both of them, I think you come out of the gate wondering a little bit more about Lizzie Kaplan's character. But with Octavia and Aaron, you don't know what you're going to get. And so that's why there was the, you know, pleasant ease and with, you know, her in this in this beautiful house and everything else. And then it starts to get darker from there. But I think there was a lot that we talked about in the room playing with audience expectation with both of them with lizzie that's the kind of performance where because she's playing these two roles it, it has at least the potential to come across as a stunt mm -hmm. how did you want to avoid having it feel like that well i think that we tried to give enough time to both characters so that they felt like distinct individuals. So we see the sisters together, but we learn a lot about them separately, their home lives, their work lives, and just tried to build them out as much as we could. Reese Witherspoon is also an executive mm -hmm. producer on this. She's got what I'm calling the streaming bingo card. Yeah. <laughs> um, shows at every streamer, among others. Mm -hmm. What was working with Hello Sunshine like on this one? They were great. The producers we had were uh, Hello Sunshine and Chernin. And um, I hadn't worked with Hello Sunshine before, but I'd worked with uh, the women at Chernin. And they, I called them all the... Um, the can-do women. It was just like, hey, I need this. Can we do this? And it was done. It was just, <laughs> it was really great. Yeah, I, maybe I should retire. I don't know if I'll be able to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, looking ahead, I mean, you, you've you got experience at broadcast and basic cable and obviously now streaming with Apple, but what do you want to do next? I mean, um, this landscape you, is so, you can pretty much do throw a dart at a board and find a buyer for it at this you point. You know, we, um, my husband and I, uh, Malcolm, he's also a writer. He's doing, he did uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier for Marvel. And um, he and I want to work with other writers. You know, we came up with a lot of nurturing, a lot of mentoring, and the two of us always hire young aspiring writers to work for us. So... You know, I read them, even though they're going to be doing things like taking my taking care of my dog and, you know, scheduling and everything. But we read samples so that it's a relationship that's a give and take. There's something that we could do for them at the end of the road. And that's just not they're coming in to be personal assistants for a year or two. So out of that, we have two different writers that we're doing projects with at Amazon. So that's, a, you know, producing and nurturing and helping other writers. That's very exciting to us. So we have, you know, offices where we have a standing writer's room. And um, if there's a pitch we're going to go out with them or there's something that they work on, anybody could come in and throw stuff on the board. And they have the two of us and a couple other people that we trust. And it's just to build this collective. So I'm super excited about that. Do you guys have an overall deal? Yes. At, at, with Amazon? It's a, a first look at HBO. Oh, that's great. And But, yeah, you have a couple of things that... Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned HBO and, I, you know, I, I don't know a good way to ask this, but we'd, we'd be remiss <laughs> if we didn't ask about about Confederate. You know, look, 
We know, did the definitive interview about that project, me and Malcolm, Dan and Dave for Vulture, and it covered everything that we wanted to say. And it's a really um, involved piece. And I think it's hard to improve on it. Yeah. But I mean, knowing that, you know, look, Casey Bloys, you know, who runs HBO, came out and said that they handled the release wrong Mm -hmm. and he faulted himself for the strategy and and the subsequent backlash. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look, there was something in that that pitch that you believed in to sell that show. Do you think in a different if this if it were handled differently or in this in this landscape, would you try that again and at a different outlet or revisit that the concept behind what you wanted to explore? You know, we're all scattered to the wind right now. You know, Malcolm at Marvel, the two of us with our uh, our uh, first look at HBO, me at Apple, and the guys at Netflix. I don't know if that'll happen. But even the genesis of the idea, maybe taking a different shot at it with obviously a different title and maybe revisiting the concept behind behind that and start again, basically starting from scratch with that. I don't know. I'm curious, with you working on an Apple show, your husband working on a Disney Plus show, what the inside baseball conversations are at the end of the day about these new people that you're working for, you know, these these new services that are trying to figure out their way in the universe. What conversations you had about what was working, what wasn't working, how they're, you know, what what's going to make these services work in a landscape that, as you might know, there are a lot of people trying to get into at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Malcolm has a theory that the next uh, round of people coming in to do content will be car companies <laughs> with the driverless cars because they'll need <laughs> they'll need something to play and entertain you while you're in the car. So he's like, you know, in a couple of years, we may be pitching the Cadillac. And um, I, think, I think Tesla TV, if right. it doesn't exist, oh my God. Elon Musk is already. <laughs> so there you go. It. You heard it here first. Oh, I'm silently crying on the inside, thinking about writing about car car programming. Oh my god! But did it? But did it feel like you were working with new companies, or did it feel like you were working with established media companies that were simply doing something different? Was there was there a feeling of newness to being in? This it was a combination, actually, because um, even though the network was new, most of the people had worked in this business for a really long time. I had relationships with some of them, so it was a combination, and I think that there was that initial excitement like this is the wild wild west what we, what are we going to do here let's all you know hold hands and make a show but it was exciting it was and i think that we only took a breather and realized oh my god we're doing launch shows for two major companies we were so in it and he worked with me on uh truth be told he was one of the eps on the show and ben watkins who was also an ep on the show and a very good friend he was one of the launch titles for Amazon with Hand to God. So it was just kind of, you know, I think we were all working so hard and so consumed. It wasn't until we were finished that we're like, oh, my goodness, we just did something kind of big here <laughs> and crazy. <laughs> well, ultimately, as you look back, how Wild Westy did it feel? Because you've talked already about sort of the trimming of certain characters. There was a change in the director on mm-hmm. this. There was some recasting. Mm-hmm. Did it did it feel like it was more tumultuous than maybe normal or No, not? it felt like normal cor- course of business because I think that every show that I've been on, you know, had once the pilot came in, they made some changes. So it felt like it didn't feel unusual. It didn't feel like it was happening because of the platform. It felt like it was happening because you find it sometimes as you go along. Did you get a sense from your husband that Disney Plus and Marvel, they seem to be more kind of hovery or hands-on-y? Because obviously then you're dealing with many different media companies that really have a rather vested interest in those properties. You know, he <laughs> loved working with them. 
I, he he loved working with them, and he's really excited. And I have seen nothing. That's the <laughs> that's the only thing that I could tell you. I have not seen. I never saw a script, even though we're in the same house. Um, yeah, and, and but he he really enjoyed it. Yeah, the mar- the Marvel secrecy is next level, <laughs> including with the press. How do you guys decide when you want to work together on projects and when? You know, we've you're off been writing own? for years, and we never worked together. And then he did a, a small room for a project at Amazon years ago, and I had just wrapped up. I can't remember what I'd wrapped up on. And um, he said, hey, you want to come in? And I was thinking, no, I don't think so. And then he was just like, I don't think it'll be good. And so we sort of used those 10 weeks as a test. And um, during that process, I sold Truth Be Told. And I think we were down like two months. And I said, you and Ben want to come on this? And it worked. And yeah. Well, it's funny because, I mean, on next week's podcast, we have Amy Sherman Palladino mm-hmm. and Dan Palladino, and they they complete each other's sentences, yeah. and they go <laughs> back and forth on scripts, and they direct one episode, then the other, and obviously that's the thing they've decided works for them. Yeah. Can you imagine that being the thing that works for you, or can you imagine really never wanting to do anything like that ever? <laughs> no, it worked for us. We found out that it worked for us. I don't know if it would have worked for us. We were both in our 20s and starting out. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a great model with Robert and Michelle King. That was like the gold standard of, um, you know, husband and wife working together. And I was with them for four years. You know, one of the things that we always like to ask a lot of uh, showrunners who come in, what are you watching? There's so much content out there. I watch so much TV. (laughs) That's the reason that I actually got into TV. Um, You know, I got the royalty statements for my second novel and realized I was going to starve to death. (laughs) (laughs) So another uh, television writer friend of mine, Charles Murray, said, I don't know anyone who watches more TV than you. This is what you should try and do. And so I wrote a um, spec of SVU (laughs) and applied to the CBS writers program in uh, 2007 and went through that. And um, I watch a lot of TV, you know, I love The Crown, loved Succession, Great British Bake Off. <laughs> That's a big one. Vikings. I love Vikings. <laughs> and um, Watchmen. That's great. New Amsterdam on broadcast TV. I really like that show. And um, I watched the first season and they got the pickup and I reached out to their showrunner just to tell them that I was a huge fan and I was glad that it got a second season so that I could continue to watch. And then in Austin, I was on a panel with one of the writers from the show. So I asked him a bunch of questions. I loved Fleabag. That was great. I really like the Ricky Gervais show, the first season of that on uh, Uh, Netflix. That's one of my favorites. That's a great show. I think there have been a lot of shows this past year that really explore explore grief in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. Dead to Me. Fleabag, Kaminsky Method, you know, everybody's just kind of cracked the code where it's not modeling, but it is sad, but there are moments of hope in it. So, yeah, I watch a lot of TV. I think it's interesting that you mentioned New Amsterdam, because when we have these conversations, I I feel like you might be the first person to mention a broadcast drama to us. And that is to some degree where you cut your teeth. Mm -hmm. When you think in terms of storytelling, do you still think of broadcast as being a place where you might find yourself? You know what? I would love to sell a show to broadcast. I don't have a preference. I just want to do the show with partners who believe in the show. 
And if that's going to be at ABC, NBC, CBS, or again at Apple or HBO, it's just where it works. Yeah. And broadcast still, you know, in, in this streaming age, still has the greatest opportunity for financial success. If you hit, you know, right. like, look, look at This Is Us. Yeah. It can still happen. And, you know, Evil's great. The King's new new show. That's a fantastic show. And I still watch all of Good Fight on CBS Access. So, yeah, I would I would do a broadcast show in a minute. When you see Good Fight, do you go, man, I wish we could have sworn that much uh, when I was on Good Wife? <laughs> <laughs> Look, look at all the things they're doing. I Dan, wish we could have done that. You love profanity, asking the profanity question. I like it. I, they are obviously enjoying it on the good fight. Yeah. So who am yeah. I to say no? But and no, you, you know what? And another show, uh, Snowfall. Have you watched Snowfall Not on enough. FX? I've, I've watched like the first season and I apparently need to watch more because I hear it gets much show. better. It's such a good show. It's such a good show. Yeah. Wrapping up, you know, look, there's a million different streaming services and more coming next year. How many do you guys subscribe to, especially knowing how much television you watch? Almost all of them. I even have BritBox and Acorn TV. Wow. That was also our first BritBox and Acorn TV shout out on the podcast. I'm sure they appreciate it. And I just got seven emails about Acorn. (laughs) They're They're very persistent. Yeah, because they had a show on Acorn. It was like um, Australia's answer to Downton Abbey, and I was a huge Downton Abbey fan. It was called A Place to Call Home. So that was the way that I could see it, and then I kept it, and I'll watch quite a bit on there, too. They like to pitch all of their things in that way. Here's Ireland's answer to This Is Us. Here's Wales's answer to Truth Be Told. And I I fall for all of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm their perfect target. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Showrunner Spotlight. Thank you. The first three episodes of Truth Be Told are now available on Apple TV+. Subsequent episodes will premiere on Fridays. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. This week's new arrivals include Truth Be Told, Hulu's Reprisal, Season 3 of Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Showtime's The L Word Generation Q, as well as Work in Progress, and Netflix's Michelle Wolf comedy special. Dan, what you got? First of all, let me say how happy I am to have uh, Michelle Wolf back on my TV slash streaming service. And I understand that a lot of people are not going to feel that way because for all manner of logical and illogical reasons, some people have a problem with her and that's okay. But I really liked both her Netflix show, which Netflix never had a freaking clue what to do with, and also her HBO special and her work on The Daily Show, where I miss her because now all they do is do remote segments with Michael Costa. But yes, I've watched this special. It's a 59-minute comedy special. It is, it's solid Michelle Wolf stuff. It's It goes into sort of cringy areas. There's a lot of uh, abortion humor. There's a lot of uh, of what if men had periods humor. Uh, some of the stuff is a little on the hit and miss side, but really and truly, I, th- I think she is, is such a a good comic voice to have around, and I wish that Netflix could have found a way to do something with her series so that it actually survived. So that's definitely a thing that if you like Michelle Wolf, you should check out. If you don't, you weren't going to anyway. I really liked Work in Progress, which Showtime picked up well after Sundance last year. It was one of the best things I saw at Sundance 
last year in the indie episodic program and it's a it's a really good really solid show and i think it probably pairs very well with the l word generation q which i have not had the time to watch our critic robin barr gave it a very positive review have you checked it out leslie do you want to put on do you have a tv cap a critic hat anywhere there that you want to put on for a couple seconds no i don't own a a critic hat but i did watch the first of the three episodes that showtime sent out Look, I I started my career covering the L word and shows like Glee for The Hollywood Reporter. And it was really fun to see a lot of these characters back on TV. And, you know, look, Jennifer Beals has always been a force as Bette Porter. And, you know, Shane is still Shane. And Kate Moaning has, of course, been on on Showtime on Ray Donovan. And but seeing these these three characters back and, and, you know, moving the show to Silver Lake and kind of exploring the next generation as the so-called Generation Q the new characters seem really good. It's it's a much more diverse and inclusive show, which is a priority for showrunner Marja Lewis-Ryan, who, when I did her first interview, she told me that was her number one priority. The show fixes what it did with, with the Max character on the original, where when you have, a, you know, a, a woman playing a trans character and, you know, look, that, that show was ahead of its time. You know, I don't think that we would see shows like Pose or even Transparent. Um, or any number of, of other LGBTQ-focused stuff on the air today were it not for the strides that the L Word made and even Queer as Folk before it, both, on, of course, on Showtime. But look, the new take is fun. It sets up a nice new world to explore. And, you know, if you're not into some of the new characters, which, you know, they, they set up a lot of different storylines in that pilot, they're still the original three. So, And if you're interested in the new season of The L Word, you should check out THR's Hollywood Remixed podcast, uh, which features an interview with Marja Lewis-Ryan, who you just mentioned. Uh, Always an interesting podcast. Also, going back to Critics' Corner, the third season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is out this week. It is a lot like the first two seasons, which is to say that the show still does something spectacularly well. I will always like watching Midge and Susie doing their comedy thing. I I am amused, though, always trepidatious about how they're handling Lenny Bruce because it's such a good performance and there's so much chemistry between those characters. But spoiler alert, bad things are coming for Lenny Bruce, and I don't know if the show is prepared to deal with that. But uh, also the new season, an awful lot of Joel. So, (laughs) Well, for more on that, be sure to come back to TV's Top 5 next week when we will break down the Golden Globe nominations, preview the Watchmen finale, and, of course, be joined by Marvelous Mrs. Maisel bosses Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino in the showrunner spotlight. If you want to know what they love about Joel, they do explain. Yeah, well, this feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review. It helps spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on the Twitter. We are happy to chat with people and hear your various questions, comments, and concerns. Speaking of questions, sometimes there are slow weeks, like this one. Maybe we could have used a mailbag segment. Who knows? If you have questions for us, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's top five, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.